help. Um, I just got a text message from Susie. Some of you know Susie's not here today because she went to Mexico with some friends. Help. I'm angry. Um, no, it's interesting. She watched this on live stream on the beach. Again, I think I'm angry. Oh, all right. Working through that. All right, so I had lunch with somebody this past week, which that's not the shocking part. Um, and it was with somebody not from Platte Park Church. But I had lunch with somebody who, while we were eating and talking, I just felt this undertone of anger. You know, he did not yell or vent. You know, he didn't smash his fist on the table. He didn't, like, grab his water glass and throw it at the wall. Um, and he didn't even really stuff it down and just stew on his anger. Um, but it, it just kind of oozed out of him. And how it oozed out was just in his being irritated and his lack of care for the other people that he was irritated at. Um, and he was just hard toward them. You know, he was in the spot where he just knew he was right and they were wrong and he was angry and he was justified in that. It's interesting. Anger. Help. It seems that anger has sunk its teeth into us as a nation and as a culture, and we accept it. It's just this accepted anger reality. You know, we feel like politics is this bubbling volcano that you just poke it, and at any moment it'll blow up. Or even in Cowtown, Denver, have you noticed this on I-25, those big signs where they write words? And it, I read just a couple weeks ago, I was driving, and it said, be nice, let someone in. You know, what happened to Denver and all the nice drivers. We're just angry driving now in Denver, too. Sad. Well, this accepted reality of anger, how do we possibly get healing? You know, how do we find freedom? How do we shed this persistent undertone of anger? If I may be so bold this morning as to say, we don't exactly need more information. I think we're aware of stuff we don't need more quotes like from the Proverbs, even though the Proverbs are great. I'll give you one just to give you one. You know, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, that is helpful. You know, anger management things are helpful, and it's important, but I feel like we need to do a little bit deeper work related to anger, not just slapping a slogan on, but actually doing some deeper transformation in our lives. Well, as we get started this morning, I want to quickly lay a foundation where we are operating from here um, this morning, and then hopefully go a little bit deeper in how to um, deal with our anger. So, Paul wrote to the Ephesians this statement. He said, <clears throat> be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Perhaps you've heard this before, and it's good, but I want to just quickly look at these affirmations, things that we need to affirm as the foundation in order to go deeper. So first, be angry. God was angry. God is angry at times. It is a totally fine and approved emotion. So we should be angry. Now, I think what happens sometimes in culture, anger gets like sucked into the negative behavior that follows anger and 
yes, maybe that wasn't good, but anger itself is okay. You can separate the anger from a negative response. So be angry. Second, do not sin. You know, some, some of you I just were thinking in your mind, oh, perfect, I can be angry, and that means I can lash out with my tongue. It means that I can go and smash your car window if I'm mad at you. It means that I can just hold it and stew inside. No, you don't get to do those things. Do not sin. And that's a complicated thing, right? Where is the line between be angry and do not sin? But you do have a choice in how your behavior responds. All right, three, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know, often this gets quoted at um, weddings as wedding advice. Um, but in this passage, when Paul's writing, he was actually writing to everyone. Like, hey, everyone, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And researchers have found that um, this is true. So something that happens, they found in their research, is that sleep can reinforce or preserve the emotion that you have. So if you go to bed angry, something that can happen is that anger can just get reinforced inside of you. And you can wake up in the morning, even in a sense, hard-hearted, right? It sinks in, it stays with you. So don't go to bed angry, but what it doesn't mean to go to bed angry, what it doesn't mean is that you need to solve the problem. You need to work through everything. You don't need to put all the shattered pieces back together before you go to sleep. You know, there, there's a time maybe when you're rested and in good space that you can work on that stuff, but to go to bed and not be angry, how do you do that? And so that's not my topic today. But, um, <laughs> but just to simply say whether you're angry at your spouse who's laying in bed with you or you're angry at your boss, who probably is not laying in bed with you. Um, But either way, you need to somehow stay in your mind and to let anger go from your body, right, and from your mind and your heart. And if it's your spouse, it's easier to say, Honey, I'm angry. This is a frustrating situation. But I love you, and I am more committed to you and our relationship and working this out than I am committed to my anger. Harder to say that to your boss um, before you go to bed, but the same concept, letting it go before you go to bed. Okay, four, quickly, give no opportunity to the devil. I think this is also so fascinating how anger, I like that idea of gets its teeth into us. It's like grabs onto us. Don't give the devil foothold. Don't let that seed take root and grow in you. You know, the, another image I think of with anger is like, wash it off of you. Get it off of you. You know, wash out that irritation, that frustration, that disappointment. You know, don't let it stick to you and take root and hold on. Maybe you've experienced this with somebody. You know, somebody says something irritating to you or does something that's irritating to you. And what happens after that? I think often for me, that irritation just kind of taints everything I think about that person. So, running through my mind is something like this. And I'll use myself as an example. Oh, Tim, that guy's such an idiot. Everything he says, I just dislike. When he just walks in the room, I just get defenses up. You know, you get tainted from maybe one thing that irritated you. So I hope we get the idea, this foundation, to be angry 
do not sin, deal with your anger, and don't let the devil get his hooks into you. All right, so I think we're aware of anger in our lives, the vibrating in our culture and our world. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, this morning, I'd like to suggest that we do what Jesus did. Jesus did this internal work of training his heart and his mind and his emotions. And we can do the same. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Jesus was God. And he had an advantage over us because of that. And that's possibly very true. But when you think about Jesus, he was also fully human. He was 100% human just like us. He grew up from being a baby to growing up to being an adult. He had to figure out his identity and grow into understanding who he was. You know, one of the things I look forward to in heaven is to hear Jesus um, give a seminar on how he discovered his divinity and how that happened for him and how he processed it and understood it. So Jesus was born into a Jewish culture. And for him, as a Jewish boy, he did all the normal Jewish boy training things for religion. He had to memorize huge portions of the Old Testament, if not all the Old Testament. So he was memorizing scripture. He was being taught by people. And in that process, he was training his mind and his heart and his emotions. Those scriptures informed Jesus. It was what created him in his identity. So, we move into the Gospels. We see Jesus now as an adult. So, he's identified that, yes, I understand I'm the Son of God, and he's in his years of ministry. And in those three years, in the Gospel accounts, there's at least 15 stories of Jesus getting angry. Isn't that great? Jesus got angry. And they tell these stories. And one very famous story happened during Holy Week, when everybody was coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, arrives at the temple, and he gets angry when he sees these people, business people, selling things in the temple for the Passover activities. So Jesus gets angry. He takes action. He flips over tables. He shoes them out. And here's what um, John says in that experience of when Jesus was flipping over the tables. Said, Jesus said, and he told those who were sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, this is interesting, that it was written somewhere, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Hold on to that idea, and we'll come back to that. Zeal for your house will consume me. So here's Jesus getting angry. He got angry and he took action. He flipped over tables like there's an appropriate place of taking action. And for Jesus, we understand that he did not, in that, cross the line into sin. In a different few days later situation, we see Jesus in a potential angry spot once again. But it's interesting that this time he does not take action. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested and the guards who had him blindfolded him, and then they started hitting him in the face and saying, hey, prophesy, tell us who hit you in the face. And Jesus, you would think, would have gotten angry and just, like, smashed them, but he didn't. He was quiet. 
which is amazing. I just imagine Jesus thinking in his mind, gets hit, thank you, Greg, gets hit again, thank you, Eric, but he doesn't respond. He doesn't take action in that situation. So how does Jesus manage his anger? How does he do this? Well, I think it is rooted in Jesus' training in the scriptures, that Jesus learned how to deal with his anger through the process of being in the scriptures. In particular, the Psalms were Jesus' prayer book. It was the place Jesus went um, for prayer, and often we think about praise and thanksgiving and emotion. But as Jesus rehearsed over and over the Psalms, they took a deep root into his soul, into his identity. They took deep root into him so much that the Psalms became the words that he would speak. It informed his language. You know, we see evidence of Jesus' familiarity with the Psalms because he quotes in the Gospels 43 of the 150 Psalms. That's pretty amazing that just in his daily life as he's teaching and talking, he's quoting the Psalms. Here's a little quiz for you. Be prepared to shout out. Which was Jesus' most favorite psalm? Shout it out. No one's willing to take that risk because you know it's a trick question. Um, I actually asked Charlie during the week, and he said Psalm 23. Jesus never quoted Psalm 23. Isn't that amazing? He quoted most Psalm 69 and Psalms 22. Psalm 22, so very close. Um, but Psalm 69 one of his favorite um, places to go. And so I just imagine for Jesus, he had that memorized, and he just reviewed that psalm. He used it as a process to work through his emotions. So it was clearly on his mind when Jesus was flipping over the tables because Psalm 69 is the place where it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Psalm 69, verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So right there in that story, Psalm 69 shows up. But again, just a few days later, on the cross, the very last moments of Jesus' life, once again, we know that Jesus was thinking about Psalm 22, and he was thinking about Psalm 69. Here's the last moment as John records Jesus' life right there on the cross. It said, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, which you're wondering which scripture that is, I'm sure. He said, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Right there, the last moment of Jesus' life, Psalm 69. Because Jesus was quoting from Psalm 69, 21, that says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. It's amazing to think that that psalm that we can read today were the words and the thoughts that were running through Jesus' mind in those last moments of his life. All right. Are you intrigued? Are you curious and want to read Psalm 69? Well, Psalm 69 might not be what you expect. Because of the 150 psalms that Jesus could have chosen that have 
you know, praise and thanksgiving and calling for harps and lyres. Um, Jesus chooses Psalm 69, which is an imprecatory psalm. A what? An imprecatory psalm, which is a psalm of anger and calling for retaliation and vengeance. You know, it's a prayer for punishment of your enemies. To imprecate is to invoke evil or to call down a curse. Not what we think of when we think of the Psalms immediately, but Psalm 69 and the other imprecatory Psalms are what taught Jesus and can teach us about processing through our emotions and processing through anger. All right, let's take a quick look at Psalm 69 and consider how we can use this psalm as a process for our own working through anger and training our own emotions. So I'm going to read the first section, and as I read, I want you to be thinking about and feeling what are the emotions that these words capture. Here it is. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hair of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? David is accredited with writing this psalm. What emotions is David expressing in these words? He's expressing angst, fear, feeling overwhelmed, feeling fatigued, feeling injustice, feeling anger, anger that is swelling up in him that is that overwhelming just flood and a feeling of helplessness and being out of control and just wanting to take control and get things back into order. And we can imagine for Jesus how as he used this psalm, he processed through it to begin in that place of starting with what he was feeling, what he was experiencing. Now, I mean, imagine Jesus facing crucifixion, and as he's facing that, just praying the psalm, God, I am up to my neck. Everyone is my enemy for no reason, and they're scheming my death. I am weary. For Jesus to begin in that place with that psalm. And then the psalm goes on to verse 5. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Again, these are David's words, his psalm, as he's writing, remembering and thinking about his own faults and his own failings, admitting them, remembering them, and not only being angry at someone else's behavior, but also remembering his own behaviors that may have hurt others. You know, what an important place in the process to pause and to remember our own place, our own follies, our own contributing things. And when it comes to Jesus, I'm curious, as he came to that line, what was Jesus thinking? 
You know, Jesus' life of perfection, no folly for Jesus. How is he processing that line? And I just wonder for Jesus because perfection was just one choice away from being ruined at any time. And as Jesus is approaching the cross and just the weight and the heaviness and the stress of the cross, was Jesus wondering, can I do it? You know, he's wondering, when they mock me and say, hey, if you've got 10,000 angels in heaven, just call them on down and help you out, is Jesus going to be able to say, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to do the Father's will? How could Jesus follow through and endure the suffering no matter what? Jumping ahead in the psalm to verse 20, here, Jesus' pain says, Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now these were pretty appropriate words for Jesus to have in mind as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, the night before he's going to the cross, and he, he invited his disciples to say, hey, come pray with me. I'm going to go over here and pray, but you stay, pray with me. And what happens when he goes back and checks on them? They've fallen asleep. And for Jesus, as he goes back and prays and sweats blood in the stress of what he's facing ahead, to feel the pain of life that Jesus had, to feel alone, to feel betrayed, to feel disappointment, to feel let down. And this psalm is what's informing him as he processes through this movement of turning to God. Even as his friends are disappointing him, it's the opportunity for him to turn and put his trust in God. To say, God, you are my solid foundation, my rock and my refuge. Now, we get to the imprecatory part, calling down judgment and asking God to curse the enemies. Verse 22. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Put out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and let them not be enrolled among the righteous." These are not the words we usually think of for the Psalms. But Psalm 69 is dealing with the very real emotion of anger. This very real process of what to do with our anger. And it's moving from this place of feeling hurt, you know, being under stress, and squirming under the pressure of enemies. And in calling down the curse, it is the act of handing over that desire for retribution to God. 
So it's the letting go of our own taking control of the situation to lash out with our words or to go out and smash their car window. And letting go of our taking action in retribution and trusting God with it, handing it over to him so that God can hand us something back of his own peace. The imprecatory psalm teaches us how, through this process, we can hand over our emotion of anger to God and trust him with it because we know God will take care. God is in control. And we want God to be in our life rather than this anger ruling our life. Well, as we move to the end of the psalm, we return to the place of being able to praise. Verse 29 says, But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. So dealing with our anger requires this whole process of Psalm 69 to arrive at this place of authentically saying, I will praise you. You know, when anger sinks its teeth into us and it, the swell of emotion overtakes us, you know, the last thing we want to do is to praise God or to read a psalm. And it's not in that moment of anger just sticking those words in your mouth of praise and that's going to solve it. Instead, Instead, we need to do this work of processing through anger, you know, identifying our emotions, to feel them, and then to hand them over to God, and through that process to receive from God a peace, a peace that surpasses understanding. Because truly, it is a miracle to go from this place of anger and to move to the place of trusting God, handing it over to Him. You know, in my life, I have a few anger regret stories. Um, you know, those times when anger swelled up and I felt like I was up to my neck and I lashed out with words or I punched a door. In those moments, I absolutely did not want to read a psalm. And I, looking back, realized that Psalm 69 was definitely not sufficiently within me. It's not in those angry moments that we need to do the work. It's in the calm times that we need to do this work to ingrain these things into us, to train our emotions, to train our thoughts, to train our words. So I want to invite us this week to simply read the Psalms, to read Psalm 69 in particular. You know, in your program is a copy printed out in the insert. And I invite you to simply read it and let God use it in your life. might require reading it slowly, feeling the emotion that David had when he wrote, reading slowly and putting your own emotion into it, putting your own experience into it. And as you process through to see what it means to put your imprecatory curses in God's hands and to release them to him, and in doing so, to receive from God back a peace. Even in the anger, even though the pieces don't get put back together, but to still receive from God a peace. And to train our lives as Jesus trained his through the Psalms. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the life of Jesus as a human to fully experience all that we experience and to know what it means to be angry, but also in that to have the training through your scripture, through your word, to follow through and respond by not sinning, but by doing the right thing. God, I pray that you would train our hearts, our minds, that the words in our mouth would be from you. And God, when anger rises up within us, that we would identify it and hold it and offer it to you and ask for you to guide us forward and how you want us to respond and that we would honor you in our response. Thank you for your grace. Amen.